Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Conscious Design. I'm your host, Ian Peterman, and author of the book Conscious Design. And I'm excited to have with me Revy Schlesinger, since she's a consultant advisor. She's been filling C-level roles, working at a high level to help businesses leverage their resources and actually create successful projects. And you have a passion for social, environmental, you know, impact design, really making businesses as good as they possibly can be. So I'm really excited to have you on and, and be able to talk about what you're doing. Thanks. <laughs> this is great, Ian. So happy to be here. I really appreciate that you reached out to invite me to do this podcast with you. Yeah. And so one of the things that you, you've worked in, we talked about is you do corporate transformation. You help even lot, really large co companies look at things. And you're also really focused on design for impact and how thinking about the, this many layered process we go through to create a brand or product or things like that. Now, how not everyone just jumps into something like that. I, I don't really know anybody that starts off right out of college as a doing that. So could you step back a little bit and share your journey on how, how did you get here and, and what, what really got you to get into this? Yeah, yeah, I'm, it's interesting. Yes, it, this is not a field, um, especially transformation work is not a field that you typically fall into out of college. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm a corporate transformation. Let me start by introducing what that is. I'm a corporate transformation consultant. So what that means is that I help usually very large companies. Um, it's a corporate transformation is a field. It's like a discipline. Um, a practice um, that involves helping very large, complex global organizations get from one business context, business state way of operating to another. Um, generally, the big change is part of a global systems implementation, or it's, you know, that um, activity of helping big companies execute global systems implementations in order to optimize and, and improve their business processes um, requires a global transformation effort um, to be successful in achieving the goals, uh, you know, the end objectives. So the big consulting firms, especially the ones that have been dealing with the global systems implementations, technology implementations, have developed a an expertise in how to do this and it's a multi-discipline multidisciplinary um there it's a that kind of work is generally a collaboration of many different experts in different aspects of what it takes who work together on a project and in order to design how to get the company from point a to point b and what it you know what you're going to do to make it happen and how it's going to work in the future and all the different tools and, and things and skills and everything that needs to be in place in order to make it real so that's what corporate transformation consulting is um, i'm a generalist um, my um, expertise is typically um, strategy for operations like so how do we um, what is the strategy? What is the strategy that makes sense given the operational context that we're working in as a company in our in industry or in the world? Um, and how, what, what does it make 
sense to design ourselves operationally as, you know, so that we can be effective in the world the way it's going and, and be on the cutting edge. Because typically the companies that I would work for, work, work with when I started my kind of real transformation, official transformation career, like for a big consulting firm, it was Price Waterhouse. So they would work with companies who were typically in the top one to three position in their industry globally. So really like the leaders. So they wanted to stay on that leadership position and be growing, right? So we were looking at like, you know, how, you know, where is this industry going? What is, what is happening in the marketplace? What are the trends in the consumer um, space or in the buyer space? You know, how, how is the whole ecosystem changing and how are we going to stay on the cutting edge? You know, how, how you know, what's it, what's it going to take? And so designing for that. Um, so yeah, so I actually, typically you do this kind of work after you've gone, gotten a few years of, of um, experience under your belt, you've gone back to MBA school and you've from, you're typically coming from a top, top school um, and graduating top in your class and someone who's been kind of playing with these kinds of concepts in college, because you have opportunities to do that and who are now, um, or in university, doing, even doing PhD as well, um, who are now coming into a um, leading industry, leading consulting firm and helping these big companies um, figure out how to make whatever they need to make happen, happen. Um, so I'm, yeah, that's, that's typically how it works. I fell into it. I, um, I actually, uh, wanted to do exactly this kind of work, um, had particularly being inspired. I, I studied in Italy in college and I was inspired, um, by, um, coursework that I extracurricular coursework that I had to do at the university of Bocconi in Milan, which is a very good business school in Europe. Um, and they had visiting professors coming from all over the world who were talking about the cutting edge business theory that they were working on at the school and alumni and students right. could come and attend or anyone who was in the area. It was very, very special. And so I had an opportunity to um, be in a course with Rita McGrath on core competencies. And it just really inspired me. Plus the, even the professors that I had in the program that I was in in Italy, um, they were also consultants. Many of them were consultants in the field who were coming back mm -hmm. to the classes and talking about the work that they were doing. So it was a very, very interesting, stimulating context to think about how I could get creative with business as a creative medium. And I'm a bit of a creative, um, kind of chose business because I was, my mother was discouraging me from going down an artistic path. She said, you know, you need to make sure you have a career that makes money. So, um, you know, business seemed to be a, a good um, way to uh, make money eventually through some kind of art. But what I would, what I found is that in the end, business itself ended up being my artistic medium, which is, it's kind of a fun little um, aside, that's awesome. but that's, that's how I feel <laughs> in relation to it. Um, but yeah, so I, so I ended up wanting to, you know, I wanted to be a, a transformation consultant. I wanted to be an operational designer, global business operations designer from, from my experience in, in that university. And so I came back to the U S graduated in a year. I had really two years to go, but I was like, okay, let me just get this over with because I just need to go out, get those couple of years of experience. And then I can go, you know, get my MBA and then I'll be able to get work in this field, but I really want to work in. Um, and then it ended up that um, I had had this experience during college. Um, so it's kind of like a step back into my um, work in apparel. So when I said I, I was a creative 
who was discouraged from going down a creative path, the creative path that I was um, exploring at that point was fashion design. And so I thought, okay, maybe one day I can have my own fashion company. So I was telling this story. I, my parents didn't have a lot of money. So I paid my way through college. My first job right when I arrived at NYU, went to the Stern School of Business, was um, hostessing at a, um, at a restaurant. And I was seating someone at a table and told them this story about how I was you know, studying business because I liked fashion. And it happened to be that she worked for Liz Claiborne. And she said to me, you know, we're, um, we're doing this, we have this intern program. Why don't you come and, and work with us? It'd be really, you know, you know love to. Oh, nice. And they took me on as kind of a mentor. You know, I've had a lot of like interesting hires that way where I've been hired in a way into something that was maybe a stretch position. And someone just was like, you know what, this person is, there's something special here. I'm going to like give a little opportunity and see what happens. And I've been really, really blessed with those kinds of opportunities. I've been it's been fortunate. But yeah, so anyway, um, I did analytics, data analytics work for Liz Claiborne as an intern in my first year of college. And it was super cutting edge. It was before department stores had scanners and Liz Claiborne was being very, very progressive. They were using category management techniques that had been, were like the cutting edge of, this is 1991, 1991 and 92. So, um, this they were using category management techniques which were like the cutting edge of big box retail where you had pos data and you could actually um, merchandise your store mm. based on how things were selling right so yeah. um just imagine that you didn't have that data. everything was manual before and you didn't have like an, you know it's like a whole other world back then right but you know so Liz Claiborne was bringing this kind of a technique into um, department store retail. And it was really interesting too, because they were using a, a very, you know, they were creating their own way of operating. They were, they were being a right. disruptor. They um, had uh, created these relationships with the department stores where they pretty much were operating like a store within a store. And the buyers, you know, had pretty complex mm. lives shopping for a department store. They had many, many different brands that they were shopping for. Um, they, um, Liz Claiborne would say, you know, we'll help you run that business for you. We'll tell you what your customer is doing and how they're buying, and we'll help you buy the right product for that customer on a store level so that you really get better sales performance and you have, you're like on target. Um, right. And the early data days. And all that stuff. Yeah. And so it was, <laughs> again, it was like Lotus one, two, three, and Buyer, you know, the salespeople would call the buyers and it would be like the buyer system would read them the numbers and they would write it down. And it was, I mean, we're talking about like Bloomingdale's and Macy's hundreds of stores. I'm like, I mean, it was a lot, a lot of data. Um, but yeah, so I was doing that analysis and I thought, oh my God, this industry is so backward. I, I don't think this is the right industry for me. <laughs> and, um, and so I, you know, had gone to Italy thinking like, okay, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do now. I'm going to have this. And, um, and I came into this topic of transformation and that's how I connected that. So I'm sorry, I just backtracked. So the way I ended up at it, at um, falling into this is that I, um, interview, I, I interviewed right out of college for a job with um, Gitano Fashions Limited to run the replenishment business. So at that time, Gitano was a really big brand or a very well-known brand. Um, it had been mm -hmm. one of the brands that really got big in the jeans heyday. And 
it, it, it was like a really huge thing. I mean, it, it was way back, right? But this is like part of like the real kind of big shifts in the apparel industry that really professionalized it. Um, these, you know, kind of companies growing to that size. Like they weren't really companies that size until the late eighties. Um, right, right. When, when that started to happen. Um, so yeah, so anyway, um, Gitano had been a really big company. They were a classic case of a family run business that got totally out of control. They were delisted from the stock exchange when I joined them and um, they were doing, they had an interesting business. They were, they were basically um, positioned as a fashion brand that was selling in Walmart or Kmart and, and you know, the, the chain shopper was like, yeah, I'm getting this great deal at this, in this high-end fashion brand buying it in Walmart. Um, mm. So that, that was their strategy. So they, um, they had a replenishment business and I interviewed for that. And like I said before, with my Liz Claiborne experience, the director of operations who interviewed me saw something in me and said, you can see, you seem like a person who could take a project and run with it. How would you like to be an internal consultant working on all our turnaround initiatives? So they had been delisted from the stock exchange and now the C-level officers were running the business and had they had sold the company already to Fruit of the Loom in like a last ditch salvage effort and um, had a year to bring the business back to profitability before Fruit of the Loom figured out how to integrate it into its operations. So it was a oh, very yeah. interesting time. We, it was the consultants running the company. We could do pretty much anything that we couldn't convince our clients to do before, or, you know, in a consulting context, right. how it is, they could make happen and they had nothing to lose because it was like, you know, do or die anyway, you know? Right. Um, and so, so we did some really amazing, amazing work. And a lot of it, um, was related to um, dealing one of the one of the biggest challenges with transformation work, which is the people, because Deloitte had been in, in, at Gitano had made a very beautiful end to end product to market transformation process that was super cutting edge and innovative, like so cutting edge and innovative that I've been working on the same exact stuff like throughout my career into you know even most recently. Oh, wow. um, that they were, you know, trying to implement then philosophically. And now we had even technologies that enable it and all this stuff like that. But they were, you know, <laughs> that that was what it was. And I was, they, I, the work that I was doing, they left it as a viewed, you know, it was classic case. They left it as a beautiful set of binders on a shelf and nothing got implemented. And the director of operations who hired me, she had been part of the transformation work. And she was like, we've got to get, this is a great work that we did. We've got to make it happen. We've got to get the company to do it. So a lot of the work that I was doing was taking that vision and actually getting the business to operate in that new way. And then also, of course, doing all kinds of other special projects. And then I, Fruit of the Loom shut down New York. They, we were the only profitable business unit of their company that year, is my understanding from, this, from our CEO. CEO. And that, um, but that they decided that they were going to shift on, they were going to focus on their core business, which wasn't in fashion. We were, we were very fashion. We were kind of like a stretch of acquisition for them because we were a fashion brand and they were more about mm. kind of basics. So they were like, okay, we just have to like let go. We're just going to bring the brand, we're gonna keep the brand, we'll do the licensing, we're gonna bring the operations, just the kind of more mechanical basics oriented operations to their headquarters and shut down New York. And so at that point, Price Waterhouse picked me up as a experienced hire. It's a very unusual way to enter um, 
consult the consulting group transformation <laughs> work, but that's how I did it. Yeah. Very oh, amazing. Well, yeah. and that gives yeah. you such a interesting <laughs> view because rarely do you get the opportunity to work in a company where you have that kind of, Hey, you have 12 months, figure it out, make it, <laughs> make it, make it happen. And then give, be given the ability to actually go, Hey, I have, I have an idea. I know how to fix this. Let's just do it rather than I we both work in consulting. It's very rarely the case that somebody actually hand you the full reins and just go, yeah, please fix it for me. There's a lot of uh, conversation and pushback or, or well, debating that's part about of the work, it. right? Is navigating all that conversation and pushback. And also like there, there is method to it, right? Too, because we're, we have oh, to yes. approach when we, any kind of transformation work, any kind of change work, you have to kind of look at the psychology of the experience for the people who are engaged. You know, what, what is this for them? You know, how, right. why here? You know, well, I feel like that? you mentioned, you mentioned a little bit, like there's, there's a lot of tools, right? We have a lot of technologies and, and things like that, that are useful for helping. But I feel like it's still the, uh, the same thing is true. At the end of the day, it all comes down to people as the psychology side. Like we can, we can make an app, but it doesn't mean people are going to use it or like it or follow its instructions, you know, things like that. And it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, like your, your experience also reflects that, that the people, you know, there's technology gets you so far, which is great. I mean, it's amazing. You know, I love technology. It's, it's great, but it is only so far that it gets you. And then it becomes, well, how do we, how do we get people to be good with this? How do we get, get the, that buy-in, so to speak? Of yeah, we we created something cool. Now we gotta we gotta implement it and and get it out there. Um, this brings me to you mentioned you have so much background in fashion and and that side of things. Uh, you had mentioned before there's you worked with a company, Kids Organic Clothing Company, oh. uh, with them. And I'd love for you to because you have this you know fashion but also systems background. I'd love for you to talk about them a little bit yeah so kids organic clothing company is my startup it's a start a company that i founded um and it was um an experiment in design for impact so it's a really it's perfect to talk about that design for impact is um kind of a concept or a way of thinking that i i really feel passionate about and, and hope that everyone can orient around and embrace. And I think that as a transformation consultant, you always design for impact actually as well. I mean, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get the, the client, the biggest bang for the buck out of the you know work that they're gonna do and the consulting money they're gonna spend on you to help their business. Right. Um, so, um, you know, you wanna, you're designing for impact, you know, the return on the investment. Um, but what I, when I say design for impact, I'm talking about uh, like a, you know, people, planet, profit impact, you know, three triple bottom line impact, um, a holistic impact. Um, right. So, yeah. So Kids Organic Clothing Company is a company I designed in Bali and, and launched and ran in Bali. I was living there um, for five years. Um, I had uh, just arrived there with a, a young child, my um, seven month old, my first baby. And um was um, I had my my uh, partner in life was recovering from major illness and we just really loved the way the Balinese were with children. 
Um, they believe babies come from the God world. So you could walk into a cafe with a crying, screaming child and they'd be like, oh, it's a little God. Let me hold them for you. Let me feed them for you. It's like, <laughs> it a really nice place to have little children and babies. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, um, we decided to stay in Bali and create, mm. you know, create some businesses that would allow us to be more home-based with our, you know, new family. Um, right. And so I had a background in apparel and big corporate, um, and I had been working in impact since 2003, like kind of really immersing myself in the topic from 2006 and trying to really like make a living in the topic, um, mm -hmm. at least on some level. Um, I thought, okay, well, you know, we, and both my partner and I were both impact entrepreneurs. So we were of course gonna be focused on impact businesses. I thought here I'm in the, the production base, I should explore doing something in apparel. And of course we had our, um, our child who we were, um, especially my partner who, who was very long time um, health and wellness uh, entrepreneur and you know, uh, health and wellness um, eco entrepreneur going back many years from Europe as well, um, who um, definitely was opposed to wrapping our children in anything that had chemicals or was made of chemicals in any way. Um, so we had to figure out how to get organic children's clothes. And so I thought, okay, this is, this is an interesting um, one to play with. Um, maybe I can put a business out that's, in, that's providing organic children's clothes. Um, but I need to, it was kind of in a time where the, the kind of trendy word in business was disruption. This is like 2009, right. about, you know, we need dis everything had to be disruptive in order to be successful. Hey, it's Ian here. So glad you're enjoying this episode of Conscious Design. If you want the full scoop on Conscious Design, what it is, how we do it, how you can do it, then check out our book. We wrote it so creative entrepreneurs like you can code social and environmental responsibility right into your brand's DNA. You can download the first chapter for free. Link is in the description. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was thinking like, you know, how, how, what's, the, what are the disruptions that are needed in in this conversation? You know, how do we change? You know, how do we make this market um, that didn't really exist um, for organic children's clothes very much, or organics in general, organic textiles? And what right. I thought is that organics or organic textiles are really um, interesting for the baby's market because I thought it, the the baby market was where the buyer, the organic buyer, was coming into the market. Um, I, what I was thinking is that, uh, and I was seeing among my kind of more impact oriented friends from back in San Francisco, where I, where I lived, you know, earlier, um, I was seeing them, you know, having new babies, having their baby showers, asking for everything to be organic, and then baby comes and time gets limit, more, more limited and money is more tight. And the it's too hard to find organics, and the mama starts buying conventional. And I was hoping that I could fill in the gaps of what was available in the organic market, and so that we didn't lose the buyer at that right. point, and that we um, and that we also um, kind of dealt with their concerns because one of the first concerns that I was hearing was 
uh, and I was calling, you know, of course, calling all my friends and saying like, well, if you could buy, you know, if, if I could get you organic children's clothes, you know, would you want that right now? You know, <laughs> um, and, and trying to understand one of the things that was coming up was that, um, you know, how organic, how eco is organic? I mean, at that point, I think we were still in these mm. kinds of questions and, you know, is it worth doing the change? Is that change going to have enough of an impact to make it worth all the implications of making the change happen? Um, right. So we, one of the things, the first brand that I actually went to market with was a chemical free natural dye that I had was designing a retail process so that it was very cutting edge for, um, for small boutique retail. I was imagining that I would sell them uh, in-store fixture and do vendor managed inventory for them you know, giving them, uh, you know, a really good target return investment that might be hard for them to achieve otherwise in their stores. But I think a lot of these small boutiques struggle quite a bit and that I would design a fixture and, um, and a customer purchase relationship to optimize the product for this, um, you know, for that retailer based on how it, the product is performing. But because I was managing inventory, I could manage the differences in shade of color that you have with natural dye, because now that's the, that's the problem with natural dye is you don't have the same consistency of color that you have with the chemical dye, where it's like right, right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was the the first, um, you know, that's kind of how I started Kids Organic. But you can see, like, I was designing the business in many ways based on trying to push the boundaries in the market. And, and, and also another thing that I did, so the natural dye was very interesting too, working with natural dye, because part of why I, I felt like I could do that is because I found a natural dyer who was a partnership of two guys who had worked for the big industry, chem, you know, the non-natural dye industry <laughs> in Java, and who were coming back to Bali where they had, were from and creating a, a community-based business in, in their town that would employ workers and where they had the skills and expertise to actually scale that business at a level that it could produce the kind of volume that I would need to build like a mass market brand. I mean, it would be right. just a stepping stone, but they, you know, they were the kind of team that I could build future factories with, you know, or stuff like that. You know what I mean? Um, so right. it seemed like a really good, um, you know, way of trying to, again, make that market. I was trying to push the boundaries. Um, but it, in the end, I ended up going to a GOTS certified um, oh, amazing. fabric for Kids Organic Clothing Company and launching a few additional brands to, again, fill in more gaps in what um, was missing in the organic market for children. So I could keep the buyer in, keep my children closed and in, in organic right. <laughs> all the time and not always look the same too. So I mean, I did a very robust um, assortment of product there um, because again, I wanted to, I wanted to enable the shop, the buyer to fully dress their child in organic nuts to bolts all, all the time. And right have everything they need to be able to do that um, and make it affordable. And so I ended up building a big part of this business um, with Zulily um, as our main customer. And Zulily is a flash sale site. So mm -hmm. what they do is they um, provide um, name brand clothing at a discount price 
um, sometimes like 50% off or oftentimes um, for th on a three-day sale. So the, buy the shopper has just a very short period where they have to buy as much as they want and as much as available. And then once it's gone, it's gone and you don't necessarily have a chance to buy it again. So um, right. I, we basically, I built our business around that relationship with Zuli. They found us really early. We had our kids organic, um, the original natural dye product and it sold really well. Um, at that point I had an inventory. I needed 2000 units to do a first sale with them. They were a brand new company. They were three years old. Since then they became, uh, you know, while we were working with them, they became a, a public company and were bought by PVC. But at that time they right. were just starting. And for us, it was great because we, you know, sold $4,000 on three days. And, you know, that was great. I mean, for a small, for a young brand, it's very hard to make sales, especially if they're doing consumer right. sales. It is such <laughs> a hard business. Just imagine how many, you know, $20 items you have to sell and you probably right. make $5 if you're lucky on one of those, you know, it's like. So yeah, I feel like that's, that's 25% is pretty good. <laughs> pretty good to walk away with. So yeah, it's a very yeah. tough business. Um, so yeah, so we did great on Zulily. So um, what ended up happening is that I actually designed the, the business in order to serve that customer and realized at some point we realized that the algorithm that I could see Zulily gave us real-time data. Um, so I could mm. see, you know, how the, the sales were performing on a, you know, 10 minute intervals. And I, oh, what wow. I would do is I would issue an, a production order every day to my team to make what had sold. And we would do a little smoothing to, you know, make sure that we were being as efficient as possible, but we could see like how things were trending. And we also had a um, retail store with a factory partner um, who, um, that business for Zulily and what happened yeah. is the algorithm was designed so that you pretty much optim the sale optimized at like 25% of sales because you were you know you have to imagine this is a site with like 50 different sales going on at the same time and they're trying to you know just sell as much you know right they're, right, probably they're rotating selling as much as the whole ecosystem not necessarily your product so yeah so it was really um you know, at that point, you know, seeing that that was happening, even when we had like these best sellers, um, I thought, okay, well, I, I was talking to my production team and my production team was um, my personal assistant who was a Balinese woman who I had hired. Um, she, was an, she was actually an English, trained as an English teacher, but her English was very good. And she was um, kind of a go-getter, which is not necessarily the most typical in Bali. You know. um, but uh, yeah, so I, she, I, I trained her in the business working with me. So, um, but she, you know, was my Balinese counterpart really, you know, working with me on the business and understanding all the the nuances and the culture and, and what was happening with the people. Right. Um, and so at that point, um, she said to me, you know, what if we only make what we sell? And, and I said, well, that would be great. That's, you know, that is, um, you know, an idealistic way of working. I, uh, you know, being demand-based um, is like, like just in time production is one of the, you know, kind of hot buttons from the 90s, right. <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so I was like, yeah, sure. So what we did was we actually, um, she, I actually positioned her eventually to actually run a network of independent sewers that she was able to bring together. And some of these people, it was interesting too, because 
part of what happens in a place like Bali is you have people who are coming from more rural areas. This is in the apparel industry all over. People come from rural areas to work in the business center in a factory where there's a job for, you know, 30 Mm -hmm. or hundred sewers or something like that um, versus in their town where you know it's far away and it's hard for them to get sewing work so they'll so that's one of those challenges in general I think that you see in the apparel industry because you have often people coming from poor rural areas to get work in the city in a factory environment right um, so uh, what this kind of model enabled is for these factory workers to actually create more home-based businesses or community-based businesses where they could pull mm. together a small team. We would invest in them getting a set of machines. So they would have to have four machines. Some of them already had, you know, some people were already doing this stuff at the side and had ready their machines. Sometimes they needed a new machine or they needed to kind of expand their team or, you know, and we would help them with facilitating that and work with them to actually figure out what product we would make and how we would make it and how we would design the whole operation of the network so that we could actually make the product in real time at the prices that we need to sell them to make the numbers on Zululi. So, right. yeah. So that's, that's amazing. That's like a whole distributed manufacturing. Yeah. It's just not, you don't hear about that in the fashion industry. Really? It ha- <laughs> actually happens, but not ne- it's not necessarily managed top to bottom. I mean, that is the, the integrated mm-hmm. management. And also even with integrated management, a lot of times we don't, we'll go to, um, well, we'll go to factory production. I mean, you will go to factory production, but it depends on if you have, sometimes you have an agent in between and you don't actually see the factory. I mean, it, it really depends on how, the sourcing and production relationships are structured by the organ, you know, by the company. But increasingly, that is the way that people that that is the cutting edge of where you want to be. You want to be able to see what's happening all the way to your production point. Right. Supply chain transparency is important, especially if you're going to certify something. Well, <laughs> right. impact too, because I mean, the re, you know, you've got to know what's really happening um, in all the different points in order to right. if you're ha- you know, not having a bad impact because there's a lot of places that you could potentially you know, have some really bad impacts along the way. We know that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and so you have this experience of working for other people, but also this company, which it sounds like you got quite a bit of experience in the whole multicultural, right? Working with our culture. And I've, I've found that working with, uh, we have, team members in several countries and it's always you have to get used to and understand the cultural norms so you make sure you're you're understanding what's what is good good or bad right, uh, for mm-hmm. everyone so it's it's always eye-opening when you start to really like you said be able the whole chain and understand like what what it, the impacts are right, of whatever you're doing, whether it's a service-based or, or product-based, it doesn't really matter. It's, there's always an impact down to the, you know, whoever's out here is coding or sewing, there's there's an impact um, <laughs> with, with it. And so it's, it's great, great to be able to understand all that impact. Yeah. Um, well, I think the idea of design for impact too is also about the framing that you're taking responsibility for the fact that as we operate in the world, there is a ripple effect, whether we're conscious of it or not. 
And as right. a business, um, you know, all those externalities and, and risks, you know, and, and the, <laughs> they, they can, you know, they have tentacles out there and, you know, we do have to pay attention to them as business professionals. Um, and right. what has come up in these more recent years as we're more aware of the environmental and social context that we live in, actually enabled by data, um, that we have to acknowledge our responsibility in addressing what's not working and, and yeah. <laughs> do it differently. I mean, it's an ethical responsibility. Um, so I, I believe that every company today should be designing for impact and looking at all the different aspects of impact. Yeah, yeah, and that's a huge, and that's basically the whole premise behind conscious design is if you're not conscious of all the impacts, then you can't, you can't make any changes. You can't make anything better if you're not aware of it first. Um, kind of looking, looking a little bit ahead, and I think this is a great segue to, to this, where do you see things going like technology, whether it's behaviors, like how, how are you thinking about implementing, like you said, positive, we want to make positive change. We know we know that we need to, we need to have better environmentally friendly products, more aware of our social impact and make it positive, not just social impact, it should be positive. <laughs> it's social impact. Kind of what are the things you're looking at or seeing or or even just, you know, things that you want to do yourself to to move that forward? Yeah, I mean, I I believe that we um, have a kind of cr critical mass understanding um, and that uh, we can um, affect the changes that are needed um, within the timeframes that we have available. Um, yeah, my focus is on, is on that. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about the next, um, this decade until 2030, my focus is really on, um, doing whatever we can to get to, I, I think we need to get to carbon neutral. I think we need to be carbon neutral and focused on drawdown by 2030. And I think we should be um, orienting towards zero waste, um, total circularity um, and zero harm. I don't think there's any excuse for harm um, you know, that we're creating. We need to take responsibility for that and clean up. And the reality is that I know from doing corporate transformation work that you can pretty much accomplish almost anything in three to five years. So I, it seems to me with the amount of technological solutions that we have today, that we have, we can make this happen. I mean, we could also just offset everything. I mean, there are many different avenues. This, is multi, this, this, is, this requires a multifaceted solution approach. Um, but I think that what we need to be doing is all strategizing. How do we get to carbon neutral, zero waste and um, zero harm as fast as possible? Yeah, yeah, we need to, <laughs> we need to add the technologies there. I, I had a great interview with, uh, research team out of the UK that uh, they said it's, it'll take about 10 years, but they can replace all uh, airplanes fuel with hydrogen. Mm -hmm. If if someone wants to put the money into making it happen, it's all 
it's all yeah, sitting all there validated it's, up. it mean, works shorter if the money is there i mean and, and the right you know, buyers are there it's always you know you can make those time i mean really three to five years i mean to put up an operation i mean like if it's only like inventing new things that might take longer than that but we've got the solutions now for a long time you know when i was doing this in you know mid 2000s that's what you know, that would come up a lot. Oh, we don't have this solutions. We, the volume can't, like we can't do organics because, you know, the, the volume can't be managed. We, we, our volume can't be managed by the supply base that's available. Like we're not gonna be able to get enough organic fabric. You know, that then it, it, the pendulum totally went beyond that where there was more organics in the market and it wasn't even getting bought as organics. It was getting bought as conventional because there was too much in the market. So, it, you know, it's, I, right now, the opportunity is there. The technologies are there. We can do solar. We can do alternative energies. We have we have options for drawdown. There's tons of deforestation we could stop right now and offset. I mean, there's <laughs> there's a lot of different ways we could approach this. Um, I think that the you know the will needs to be um, you know clarified and focused on i think we're at the point given covid we've seen how much we can change in a short time span when there's a crisis that we need to yeah take that's a great for. example <laughs> we can you know I, my thought is that at this point um you know we have what it takes to turn this around we just need to really focus on that and I, I believe it's going to happen, or at least it's going to happen to the level, you know, sufficiently that we're going to be able to make it through. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a more positive. That's what I'll we'll, we'll, we'll make it. It'll just be how painful it is. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's our choice right now. Um, well, this has been a great <laughs> conversation. I really appreciate your, your time sharing what you've been doing and, and uh, your own experiment as you called it running a running a business and and really paying attention to all those different impacts which is it's great to see that you have both this you know yeah i ran the mom and pop thing but i also understand corporate uh and it's great to hear from someone who does transformation that yeah three to five years is totally fine if if you just put some weight behind it <laughs> it can it can happen which is always good to hear um, but yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share all this and, and hopefully you can help many more companies make, I don't know, make a pivot towards being more sustainable. It seems very doable. We just have to help, help people pivot and, uh, actually do it. Get on it. Yep. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> it Thank is. Thank you so it's... much, Ian. Really, really appreciate this. Amazing. Um, Thank you.